This morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, and uh, while you're turning there, let me ask you a few questions. We've been talking about looking to Christ this morning, looking to Christ in sanctification, as Andrew from the West Valley Bible Study mentioned. Uh, what tremendous truth we're going to see today here. So some questions. Do you go to church on Sunday, and you try not to sin on Monday and Tuesday, and by Wednesday you'll wonder what happened? Do you sometimes think, am I really a Christian? Has one of your friends, maybe someone in your Bible study, ever come to you and said, they're not sure if they're a Christian? Have you ever found yourself in the same sin over and over no matter how hard you try to avoid it. And those times, have you ever felt kind of like you're in the doghouse with God or something? Have you ever wondered if you're really saved? Maybe you've never struggled with assurance of salvation, and right now you're abiding in Christ. I've been praying for you all so much this week. I know many of you are. But it could be that you think you do the right things, you behave well, that you're not too bad of a person, so you think you have nothing to fear. Could it be that you have a false assurance this morning, like I once had? So what is assurance of salvation? In the, uh, the big white book, The Biblical Doctrine from Pastor MacArthur, he gives a great definition in the back of it. It says, assurance of salvation is the divinely given confidence of the believer, that he or she is truly saved. So I ask this morning, do you lack assurance? Have you ever lacked assurance? Has someone you know ever lacked assurance and you didn't know how to help them? Well, God gave us a letter to help us with that. First John, specifically, we're going to look this morning at 1 John 2, 28 to 3, 3. And this passage shows you that Christ's return is the basis for your assurance of salvation. This morning we're going to see the need for assurance, the beginning of assurance, and the realization of assurance. So, since we're parachuting into the middle of this letter... Let me give you a quick little briefing on a few relevant things before we land in the text we're going to look at this morning. So the Apostle John wrote this letter to a church that had been wounded by false teaching. The false teachers had gone out, but those who remained were shaken in their assurance of salvation. So John wrote this short letter so that those whom he believed were indeed saved would know it. And know it for certain. Sometimes when we think about tests of faith or thinking about assurance, we may think of 2 Corinthians 13.5 where Paul wrote, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. But you know, in that letter he was writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, a church that was openly entertaining gross sin. He had to be a little heated in there in that letter. But in 1 John, John's not being polemical. 
He's not trying to root out false converts because they had already left the church. You see that in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us because they were not of us. John's not trying to shake them up and scare out the converts, false converts. He's trying to give believers assurance so that they would know they're saved. So John's gently addressing a people whom he believes on the whole to be saved. And we see his tenderness throughout this book. Just briefly before we jump in, if you look at verse 28, chapter 2, verse 28, he says, and now little children, you can't miss these throughout the the book, children, little children, beloved. This term of endearment shows John's tender heart for these believers. You see, John wrote this letter late in his life. He was probably about 90 years old, and he's writing to second and third generation Christians. They're kind of like his children and his grandchildren. And that's the tone through this letter. Imagine a grandfather talking to two generations below him. Just with love and tenderness, tenderness. he knew them, he loved them, he cared for them. Now, none of them had seen the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. Keep that in mind for later. They had not yet seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And John's goal was not to cause believers to doubt their salvation. So, if I'm faithful to this book and to the passage we're going to look at this morning, that's not my goal either. It's not my goal to make you doubt your salvation. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says he wrote, To you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so that's also my purpose today, that believers here this morning will know how to have assurance of their salvation. So although it's often said that 1 John presents tests of salvation, I might clarify that These are tests which he expects them to pass. You see, the best teachers don't design tests in order to fail students. Sometimes you might feel like that. (laughs) The best teachers design tests knowing what the students can handle and tests that will challenge them and build their confidence. All right. So let's read the passage this morning, 1 John 2. We're going to start at verse 28. The apostle says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he is manifested, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone also who does righteousness has been born of him. See how great a love the Father has given to us, that we would be called children of God. And we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. Thank you so much for this morning. We've already 
heard so many truths about looking to Christ, exhortations to look to Christ. We've sung about Christ and his work for us. Thank you for being such a good and gracious God. And Father, you don't want your people to live in uncertainty. So would you give those that are struggling this morning assurance of their salvation? And for here, those here this morning, Father, who do not know you, I just ask that you would convict them of their sin, that they might call out to you today for salvation. Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would, would open the ears and the hearts of your people this morning to hear this word, to know it, and to look to Christ. Amen. So I said in this passage, we're going to see the need for assurance, the beginning of assurance, and the realization of assurance. So first, we're going to look at uh, 2.28 and see the need for assurance. It says, and now, little children, abide in him. Abide. Some translations will say, remain in fellowship or continue in him. And the word in the Greek here can mean to physically remain in a place, but there's a a bit of a different nuance to how John uses it here. Uh, That's why some translations translate it as abide. It's kind of jarring to us if you hear abide. It's just kind of different. I don't think we use that expression really. But it lets us know that something's going on with this term here. Well, John picks up this use of the word abide from the Lord Jesus himself. In John chapter 15, and don't go there now, we don't have time to do it, um, but you can check it out later, you can read in John 15, Jesus gives the illustration of the vine and the branches. We believers are the branches, and we're to abide in the vine and bear fruit. To briefly explain this idea of abiding, there's two components to it. There's a positional component and a qualitative component. The positional component to it is that every believer positionally abides in Christ. That will not change if you've been born again. You are in Christ. You abide in Christ. Your position with respect to God will not change. Now, in John 15, it talks about the branches who do not bear fruit will be pulled off and thrown into the fire. And that doesn't mean that If you are in Christ, you can suddenly be out of Christ. That's talking about false converts who are kind of around the church, but eventually go out and prove that they weren't ever abiding in the vine to begin with, okay? But if you're born again, positionally you abide in Christ. That does not change. But there's a qualitative aspect to abiding in Christ. There are times when we are not actively resting in God, And that's kind of how I would describe this qualitative aspect to abiding. It's kind of like a father holding his infant child. Now, the infant may be flailing and kicking and screaming and fussing. The father won't drop him, but the child isn't receiving the benefit of being held and being comforted by the father. That's kind of the qualitative aspect aspect of actively resting in Christ. 
But if you're living in unrepentant sin, believer, you won't be abiding qualitatively. In Psalm 38, David describes it like this. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities go over my head as a heavy burden they weigh too much for me. You see, as a believer, when we're in the midst of unrepentant sin, there's no way we're abiding. We're flailing and kicking in the Father's arms. And so you need to get this today, believer. When you are not abiding qualitatively, when you're not abiding in Christ qualitatively, you're not going to have genuine assurance of salvation. If what I read from Psalm 38 sounds like you, no soundness in your flesh. I mean, you're you're just not assured. But the text says, abide in him. And that's a command. It's an imperative. You are instructed to be in that state where the quality of your relationship with God matches the position of your relationship to God. And so it says to abide in him so that when he is manifested. Now, unless you have the legacy translation, your Bible probably says when he appears. And the legacy translates it as manifested. For now, stick a pin in this word. We're going to see it later. But just notes that on first reading of this, it might seem that this word is redundant. I mean, later in the verse, he says, at his coming, which is a common way of referring to the return of the Lord. We might say, well, he could have just said, so that when he comes, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him. Why did he say manifest? or appears, and his coming. You see, he chose to introduce this word manifested because he'll come back to it later. He wants to put that out there, and he's going to come back and show the significance and the intention of him placing that word here. So that when he is manifested, the text says, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame. At his coming. This word confidence, it comes from the idea of being able to speak freely in the presence of someone of higher rank than you. The idea is you're not afraid to stand before someone powerful because you don't expect any negative consequences. I was thinking how to give you a sense of this, and um, my mind went to Esther. You remember the story. Esther had become the queen of Persia. Mordecai heard of the plot to kill the Jews. So he asked Esther to go to the king to plead for their people. But Esther does not have confidence in coming before King Ahasuerus. And she tells Mordecai in Esther 4.11, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. Esther didn't have confidence to come before the king, much less confidence to speak freely 
before him, but she gathered the boldness to do it. Now, John isn't telling you to gather boldness of your own in the face of uncertainty. He's saying that you can have confidence when Christ comes. Otherwise, you will shrink away from him in shame. This shrinking away in shame isn't It's not a subjective feeling of guilt. It's not just feeling like you did something wrong. It's actually being put into a shameful position, being in a shameful state. And shame here is also associated with judgment. Often this word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And quite often, it's in the context of judgment. And so this shrinking away from him in shame It's coming before the king, but he doesn't extend the scepter. You're done for. That's what this shrinking away in shame means. But if you abide in him, believer, you will have assurance that when he returns, you have nothing to fear. You see, unlike Esther, you don't have to muster up boldness in the face of uncertainty. So you need assurance because you're commanded to have it, to abide in Christ, to be in that qualitative state where the quality of your relationship with God matches your position in him. And you also need assurance, believer, because Christ is returning. And now you ask, where does this assurance start then? If we need it, we see the beginning of assurance in the next two verses, 2.29 and 3.1. And I know we're going over a chapter break here, but this is one idea that flows together, and we're going to see that. Verse 29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who does righteousness has been born of him. Now, this seems kind of like a non sequitur. I mean... John was just talking about confidence at the Lord's return, and now he's, he's apparently made a leap here. What's going on? Well, John is being really intentional, okay? He's introducing two ideas in this verse. He's introducing the idea of birth and the idea of sanctification. And these very two ideas are going to come to be keys to your assurance of salvation. Now, this verse says, Everyone. Everyone also who does righteousness has been born of him. Everyone. This is not optional for the believer. It doesn't say that some believers do righteousness. It doesn't even say that most believers do righteousness. It doesn't say the really super Christians do righteousness. It says everyone. All believers, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2.10. Now understand that he's not talking about sinless perfection here. And if you read this book or if you've read it before, you may be familiar. He goes on in a couple of verses in 3.6 to say, no one who abides in him sins. But also back in 1.8, he said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So is John contradicting himself? No. We have to understand in each context, in each part of the letter, the point he's trying to get at. But the big picture is not that we're sinless, but that sin doesn't line up 
with the nature of one who is born of God. Those born of God are characterized by doing righteous deeds that are unnatural to the world and unnatural to those who are in the world. They're characterized by an uprightness of living. Everyone also who does righteousness has been born of him, it says. In this verse, him means God. John uses he and him throughout, and you kind of got to, is he talking about Jesus? Is he talking about the Father? Is he talking about God, as in the Godhead, the triune God? So you kind of got to sometimes figure it out. But in this verse here, him is talking about God. And John uses the phrase, born of God, in 3.9, in 4.7, and in 5.1. And also, we never see the believer being spoken of as born of Jesus. So the him here is God. And we see similar terminology in John's gospel account, calling believers those who are born of God. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Jesus also says in John chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the beginning of assurance, is being born again. And knowing that you're born again. And note also here that it says has been born. This is in the perfect tense. It means something happened in the past, but it has a present ongoing significance. It's not a one-time event that no longer matters. Ongoing effects. So how do you know that you've been born of God? I mean, that's the big question, right? Assurance. Well, according to John in this passage here, if you're born of God, you should kind of look like him. You do righteousness because he is righteous. You've heard the expression, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Or how about like father, like son? People should say that about you with respect to God. Because of, if you're born of him, you should kind of look like him. So one of the ways which you know that you're born of God is if you walk in uprightness. Not that you're perfect, but the trend of your life is doing righteousness. And it's not a legalistic righteousness. Not legalistic, but one that comes from a heart motivated by God's great love. And speaking of the great love of God, John can't contain himself thinking about that. In the next verse, he says, See how great a love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. Now, how great a love, it's not a comparison. He's not using the comparative sense, great, greater, or greatest. The expression here in the Greek is an expression of marvel and of wonder. It's like he's saying, What sort of amazing thing is this? This does not compute. I can't process it. For God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, it's God's great love, not what we have done. God's great love that has made us his children. And none of us who are born again should have any trouble marveling at the greatness of God's love. Think for a second about what you were like B.C., before Christ, right? Selfish, prideful, driven by lust, legalistic. Well, that was me. Can you relate? What's your list? How great is God's love that he saved me? How great is God's love that he saved you, dear believer? And you looked nothing like him. I looked nothing like him. That's why I had to be born of him. That's why you had to be born of him. So that you could look like him. And if you're not born of God, you don't have the beginning of assurance. If you're not born of God, you can't do righteousness. Any good works, any good things that you think you might do. It's like I was just uh, in the bathroom this morning, and I saw a little boy crawling around on the floor to check to see if people were in the stall he wanted to go into. And then he scurried out without washing his hands. And that boy comes and brings you a donut. Is that a good work? Well... I think we get the point. If you're not born of God, anything good that you think you do is offered up with those kind of hands to him. But if you're born of him, then you can do the righteousness which he set out before you to do. And this great love, John says, is that we would be called children of God. But it's not just that we're called children of God. You can be called many things that you actually aren't. I could be called world's greatest dad. That doesn't make it so. I don't even have a mug that says that, you know. (laughs) But John says, it's not just that you're called children of God. It's not an empty title. He says, we are children of God. It's a simple statement of reality for one who is born again. It's not we might be children of God. It's not we will be one day children of God. It's not we were children of God and now not so sure. It's we are children of God. And if you are born again this morning, you are a child of God. And knowing that you're born of God gives you assurance. He's not going to disown his children. Have you seen a mom or dad drop off their toddler at the nursery? Have you done that? (laughs) Um, Every toddler goes through the phase where they fuss and throw a fit because they don't want to be separated from mom and dad, right? But eventually the child learns what it means to be the child of their mom and dad. It means he won't be abandoned. Mom and dad will come back. There's not a day when he is suddenly not their child. So if you struggle with assurance of salvation, reflect on your position as a child of God.
A side note, some people in the world say that everyone's a child of God, that, oh, we're all God's children. Well, that's not the case. If, if you're here this morning thinking that, <clears throat> God created you, but unless you're born of him, you're not his child. Jesus actually said in John chapter 8 that you're of your father, the devil. If you have not been born of him this morning, God's great love invites you to call out to him, Plead for him to give you the new birth, that you may be his child, that you may be forgiven of your sins. And as this passage reminds us, don't delay. Christ is returning. I don't want you to shrink away from him in shame and face his judgment. Now, John helps us with yet another way we can know that we're born of God. He writes, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So see, if you're born of God, you resemble him in some way. And that means that the people of the world, those who are not born of God, they shouldn't recognize you as one of their own. Believer, I ask you, do you stand out from the world in a good way? Do unbelievers who know you know that you don't go along with certain activities? Do they know that you don't go along with certain patterns of speech? Or might they be surprised to find out that you're a Christian? Might they think, he's just like us. I mean, he goes to church, but he's just like us. See, if that's the case, it's going to be a struggle to have assurance because we don't really look like him. But if you stand out because you regularly do what, was, what is right, you don't compromise, you don't seek your own way, but you seek God's glory, then the world is going to think that you're odd for all the right reasons. And so we've seen the need for assurance. Christ is returning. We've seen the basis for assurance, which is being born again. The beginning of assurance is being born again. And now... In verses 2 and 3, these are probably my favorite two verses in the Bible. We're going to see the realization of assurance. In verse 2, he says, Beloved. Again, we see John's tenderness. It struck me. The disciple whom Jesus loved is calling you beloved. Now we are children of God. Right now, we're already children of God. But this sort of gives us an anticipation for what's coming next. He says, now, at this present time, this now refers to time. It's not a logical connection. He's saying now. And that gives us an anticipation for what's to come. What will we be? It has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when he is manifested... We will be like him. So John says he doesn't know exactly what we're going to be, but he knows one thing. No matter what it is, it's going to be like Christ. And the phrase, as yet, gives us the sense that there's an eagerness, a longing, a can't wait. It's like Christmas morning, all the kids around the tree can't wait. They're longing to see what's in those, in those wrapped gifts. They, they may not know exactly what's in them, but it's going to be good. 
John has an even greater yearning for seeing what the Lord will be like when he returns. Because he will be like him. This word manifested, we see again here twice in the verse. Now in the NASB and the ESV, it says appears. And appears suggests it's like an active thing, that something just appears. Is it on its own? We don't know. Kind of a poof and the smoke clears and it's there. We're not quite sure. Did it bring itself here? I don't know. But in the original, it's a passive tense. And it sounds kind of awkward to say when he is manifested, but that reflects the passiveness that something is bringing it about. It's not something that randomly appears out of nowhere. It's not something that we bring about. But what we will be will be manifested by God and not be done by us. And when he is manifested... Now John's referring again to the second coming of Christ. But do you see why back in 2.28 he said manifested? And then here he says manifested and manifested. He introduced that expression back there. So now he could pick it up and show us that Christ's coming is the reason we need assurance. But it's also the very thing that's going to give us that assurance. When he is manifested, we will be like him. This doesn't mean that we'll be exactly like Christ in every way. I mean, we're not going to become members of the Trinity. We're not going to be little gods. I think we understand that. It means that we will resemble Christ in certain ways. Well, we know we'll have a resurrection body like his, but in context here, John has one thing in mind, just one thing, the moral purity of Christ. That's what he's talking about. We're going to see it in the next verse. But first he tells us why this will happen. Because we will see him just as he is. When Christ returns, the sight of him in his glory will instantaneously make us like him. Now keep in mind John saw Christ. He saw the Lord incarnate. He lived with him for three years. He even saw the risen Christ. He saw the Lord at his transfiguration. But John says something about this return, something about what Christ will look like when he returns, is going to make those born of God look like him. The battle with sin will be over. You've heard the expression, seeing is believing right? John's here saying, seeing is being. That's what it's going to be like when the Lord returns. When we see him, we'll be like him. What marvelous hope this is for every believer, because if you are going to be made like him when he returns, you have assurance of salvation. And then verse 3, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him. What hope? What he just said, the hope that the Lord is returning and the hope that we will be made like him. And this hope isn't just a wishful thinking. It's not even an eager longing. It's not, I hope gas prices go down. If you're single, 
perhaps you'd like to get married. It's not even, I hope to get married. It's not, I hope to see my great-grandchildren born. I have that hope. This hope John's talking about is the confident expectation that it will happen. And because it will happen, you should live right now like you actually believe he's returning. Now, if you're an unbeliever today, briefly, you may think, this guy that wrote this book over 1,900 years ago was talking about eagerly anticipating Christ's return, and, uh, well, the Lord hasn't come back yet, so what gives? Well, don't forget, a thousand years are as a day to the Lord, and he is patient to you now, unbeliever, if you're in your sin, so that you might come to repentance. The Lord is returning, and the dead will be raised to judgment. Now it says this hope is fixed on him. You notice your Bible may have the word fixed in italics. It means there's not a Greek word that's directly being translated as fixed, but it's a bit of an interpretive decision by the translators to reflect to you the nuance of the grammar here. And the idea is that the hope rests totally on Christ. And this hope gives you confidence in his coming. If your hope is fully placed in Christ himself and in his return, Christ is the confident foundation of your hope. If you've ever flown anywhere on an airplane, you have your little drink, you get a Coke, ginger ale, club soda, um, that's me, sitting on that flimsy little tray table in front of you, sitting there, and then some turbulence hits. What do you do? I kind of grab that cup. I'm kind of hovering it over the tray table. I'm kind of holding it, but I'm kind of resting it on the tray table. I don't want it to spill. That's not confident assurance. That's not hope fixed on him. Christ is not that flimsy tray table bouncing around in the turbulence. You can set your hope down on him, believer. In fact, you have to set your hope down fully on him no matter the turbulence in your life. And here is what your hope in him and his return produces, assurance. But if you will be made like him when you see him, then as you look to him even now, you're already going to start looking like him. And that's how the verse continues. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Purify here doesn't talk about some ritual cleansing or some doing penance, going through a set of prescribed motions or repeating some kind of a habitual practice. Rather, it's a continual process. This is the doctrine here of progressive sanctification that we see. As we look to Christ, like Andrew talked about, they're talking about in the West Valley Bible study, as we look to Christ, we sin less and become more sanctified. And in this letter, John talks about sanctification. I I don't think he ever uses the word, but the concept is all throughout. He talks about it in a different way than maybe we're used to. You know, we might have heard the Puritans talk about mortification of sin. We may think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 talking about disciplining his body. Some translations may say, I beat my body. 
We typically think about sanctification as doing kind of hand-to-hand combat with sin, fighting sin, getting rid of it. Now, these things aren't wrong. You have to identify and repent of sin. But it's not the primary way we should look at sanctification. In this letter, John doesn't define sanctification in the negative sense. He's not looking at the sin and what you're doing in relation to the sin. He talks about sanctification in the positive sense. In chapter 2, verse 3, he talks about keeping Christ's commandments. We saw in 2.29, he talked about doing righteousness. Later in 3.23, he talks about loving one another. Basically, sanctification comes as you live in alignment with your true identity as a child of God. Sanctification comes primarily by looking to Christ. He's the pattern. You have to know what he looks like. If you're constantly dwelling on your own sin and neglecting to dwell on Christ, you're probably not going to have assurance because you aren't going to like what you're looking at most of the time. You'll be spending all your time looking at what you're trying to avoid rather than where you're going. This reminded me of when I learned to drive. Lived in Virginia and uh, was going eastbound on Warwick Boulevard, Route 60, that actually ends out here in La Jolla. My mom was in the passenger seat. I was so afraid of going over the line on my left that I was staring at it and staying as far away as I could from that line on my left. But every time we passed a light pole on the right side of the road, my mom was kind of tensing up. And it's like I could sense it. And finally I asked her what was going on. You see, I was so concerned with going across the line on my left that I was drifting across the line on my right and almost clipping light posts. So what did I need to do? I just needed to look up to where I was going. And that would keep me straight. I actually think about that so many days I drive about that incident. I've been driving for 26 years or something. This is precisely what John says will sanctify us. Don't look at that line on your left you're afraid of crossing over. I mean, that's good. That line's good. Don't cross it. But you're probably going to run over the line on your right if you're not looking ahead to where you're going. And that's what the next part of the verse says. John directs our attention towards him. It says everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This pronoun translated he isn't a personal pronoun in the Greek. It's a demonstrative pronoun. It's literally that one. Just as that one is pure, he's pointing us. The function of this is to take our eyes off of wherever they are and say, look at that one over there. Look ahead to where you're going and be made like him. Get your eyes off your own failings. Stop your pity party. And look ahead to where you're going. If you'll be like him when you see him, then looking at him even now is how that's going to start. So how does all of this relate to assurance? You realize your assurance of salvation when you see yourself progressively being made more like Christ. 
Now, don't become a legalist. Don't think you'll obtain assurance by avoiding sin or by doing good. Legalism gives false assurance like the Pharisees had. It'll be an assurance based on your own works. And if you make assurance your goal, then assurance will be your idol. And what is that idol? Is really your self-comfort. So remember, your goal is not assurance. Your goal is Christ. And John's theology of assurance in this book would say that, believer, you want to be sanctified? Look at Christ more. You want to sin less? Look at that one. Look at Christ more. So how do you look at Christ? How do you abide? Just really briefly. Abide. The first time I kind of read this and wrestled with this concept, I mean, it seems kind of nebulous, kind of mystical maybe, but it's not. You've heard the old Sunday school song, and I have a note here that says, Do not sing. You've heard the song, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. That may seem simplistic, but that's where you have to start. You look at Christ. Don't read the Bible and don't pray to check it off a list. Do it to seek Him, because that's how you see Him. And also read the rest of this letter if you're struggling with assurance and see what else it says about abiding in Christ. In this passage, John has shown you that you need assurance of salvation. You need it because Christ is returning. Assurance begins with being born of God and realizing it. And if you're born of God, you'll be made like Christ when he returns. So even now, look to Christ. You will be sanctified You'll start to look more and more like him. You'll abide in him. And then you'll find yourself having the confident assurance that when he returns, you're not going to shrink back in fear. You're going to be made to look like him. And you'll realize the assurance of your salvation. Father God, we thank you so much for this loving letter from the Apostle John. I just, I just pray for these dear believers here this morning that they would know that they are your children and they will start looking like Christ even now. And I ask that any of those here this morning who are not born of you, who do not know you, would not delay, Father. Would your great love Extend to them that they may call out in their sin and call out for forgiveness. Would you bless your people this morning as we continue to fellowship and we continue to sing and we get to hear your word preached again from Pastor Harry? That your people would be edified, your people would be assured, that your people would look to Christ and that you would be glorified above all. Amen.